Today on The Topping Show, Bud Light is losing store shelf space, Mr. Beast is suing Beast Burger Company, Hollywood admits it can't come up with any original ideas, so they're just going to do remakes, Starbucks is sued for discrimination from racial equity, Trump is in a political check, has a Department of Justice and Biden put him in a checkmate, White House attempted to censor the Daily Wire, California vs. AI cars vote is coming up and will it shape the industry, Chick-fil-A is testing out a new store concept as well as McDonald's, you have Lucid cutting the prices of their EV sedans, and Wells Fargo has their deposits suddenly vanish yet again. All of that and much more on The Topping Show. Thank you everyone for taking the time to tune in today. Today's episode of The Topping Show is sponsored by Topping Technologies. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in IT security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. Gotta say he's quite handsome and brilliant. He's me, that, that's a joke. If you're an IT leader or a business owner and need a little assistance, you can reach the team at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. We're also trying to get to 3,000 subscribers by the end of August, so you can click that button and greatly appreciate it. Now, going on to the business part of the podcast, you have Chick-fil-A testing out a new drive-through design. Now, it looks like they're testing out new designs and two unique capacities. Now. Of course, both of these designs are also putting a huge emphasis on digital orders to go. In some of their locations, they're actually having more than 50% of all their sales come from people ordering via the apps, whether that be Uber Eats, Postmates, Favor, or just directly through Chick-fil-A. So it's a fascinating shift in terms of their customer base, and now they're actually having whole restaurants designed specifically for that in mind. And of course, when it comes to Chick-fil-A, they are perhaps best known for the efficiencies through with their drive-through capabilities. And even rare enough in fast food, they actually get your order right, which I'm surprised they haven't gotten trophy for that in of itself. Now, it looks like they're gonna open up a walk-up restaurant in New York City and a drive-through restaurant near Atlanta metropolitan area. Now, they're both gonna feature cutting down on wait time attempts. And you have Chick-fil-A's executive director, Caleb Cooper, saying that the Atlanta store will feature a drive-through lanes, two of which will be dedicated to mobile order pickups. The companies will run over the sec- the um, customers either actually will drive under it. And it's going to be fascinating. It's almost like a bank. I almost suspect, I don't think they'll use the same tech, but in terms of a delivery system, why not have little tubes when back, I know some banks still use this. I might be, I might be dating myself, but they have a tube system where the teller would put your money or your checks into a little canister the size of a tumbler and it would be shot up through a tube and go all the way to you in your car when you're sitting there with the bank drive-through. Now, why not use that same technology? Granted, you have to upsize it, maybe scale it 2x so the size and dimensions are all twice as big as they normally are, but why not that do that from a fast food perspective? They're already admitting that it's gonna have an over, overhead conveyor belt connected to chutes running down the sides. So it sounds close. Why not go the whole nine yards making a shoot through the system? But maybe that goes too fast and the toppings, you know, fall all over, it's haphazard, some might say, with the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwiches. But it is interesting to see as this still faith-based private company expands exponentially and it's still not open on Sunday, which in terms of sales figures and business is so impressive when you have other competitors that are open seven days a week, still not beating them in sales. So it's fascinating to see one of the very few restaurants that's still privately held and faith-based expanding how much will they be able to eclipse their competition? And will this make it the lines that much more efficient and help drive their sales that much more? As I always say, time shall tell. Other interesting business use, you have McDonald's coming out with a new restaurant concept as well. Now, the spin-off is going to be called Cosmic, which is actually apparently from an old alien mascot that they used from the 80s and early 90s. Now, you're seeing this with a lot of fast food companies in particular, where they're leaning full in to nostalgia. I can't help but notice many of their logos are actually reverting back to previous designs. And I suspect it's partially to do with maybe a perceived quality of the food better back in the day. Whether truth or not, they use different ingredients, different suppliers, or maybe it's just a mental perception. People are more reminiscent of the past when taxes weren't as high, or if you were a kid, you weren't paying any taxes at all. Well, perhaps the dad tax when the dad takes a couple of your fries out of the food. But some might say they're better times in general. So. A lot of these fast food companies are reverting back to the old brands and logos. And this, in this case, they're actually opening up a whole new restaurant based on a mascot. Now, personally, I'm pessimistic to see is that one mascot that, again, is not Ronald McDonald, is it popular enough and reminiscent enough with fans to drive attendance and foot traffic? 
you did see this huge cultural phenomenon where everyone was obsessed with the Purple Grimace, I believe, uh, two months ago, and the sales of associated products exponentially went incre increased, thanks partially to the trends on the old TikTok. Now, it looks like the Cosmic is going to be a small form concept, and they claim they'll have all the DNA of McDonald's, but its own unique personality. Now, this is according to McDonald's CEO Chris Kaminsky, and they also know that the Cosmics will launch a small number of sites in a, quote, limited geography in early 2024. Now, in total, McDonald's plans to invest $2.4 billion in capital expenditures that, that this year, and half of it will go towards building 1,900 new restaurants across the globe. Which is interesting because a lot of these fast food companies, not just McDonald's, you do have these accelerations and decelerations where they're opening up a lot of stores, then they're closing them. There's a little bit of a trial and error as they try to figure out which geographic locations and people fit best for long-term profitability. You saw this with Starbucks when Charles Schultz had to, or um, not Charles, what is his first name? Uh, Howard Schultz. I had to look at his book on the shelf. Uh, let me know if, ADHD question, let me know if you want me to do a book review. I usually read one business or philosophy political book a month. This month I'm actually reading a book about the Blackberry company and how they built it from the ground up. But I digress, another question for another time perhaps. In terms of McDonald's, will this be a new successful co concept? Will it be a smaller footprint? I would think they would try to focus more on web sales or app sales because in terms of a restaurant capabilities and a return on investment, one of the most expensive things about most businesses, especially retail, is the real estate and actually square footage. So if you can shrink that square footage and make it more efficient, get more R better ROI out of it, it might be a lot more efficient and better long-term business plan. So it'll be interesting to see let me know in the comments, Have you? do you remember this cosmic? And would, would you be really, would you go to a store just to reminisce? It'll be interesting to see. Time shall tell. Other interesting businesses, you have Lucid cutting the price on their EV sedans, which in terms of business practices, that's not the best thing to do when you're, when you're perceived as a luxury brand. Now granted, personally, I don't consider them luxurious just because if I had all the money in the world, well, I'd probably still keep my Honda Civic. I like that little thing. But I'd probably get a Porsche with a stick shift because they got three pedals, as all best cars always have. If you've never driven a stick shift, sometimes a manual transmission, I highly recommend it. It's the most fun you could ever have. Now, that's my version of luxury. That's just me. Now, when it comes to Lucid, they're coming out as an EV luxury brand. Granted, I kind of thought Tesla was that because they're pretty expensive as it is, but these are even more expensive. I believe their cheapest car started at about 90000 and the most expensive one is called the Lucid Air Sapphire, which if it doesn't come with a sapphire watch or a gold ring or a sapphire embedded ring, I'd be highly disappointed because of the price point for that car. Again, this is an EV, which is basically disposable given the technologies we have at this current moment with the lithium ion technologies. This is basically a disposable smartphone in terms of you're not gonna keep this for 10 years. But I digress, I know I'm one of the few people who still look for a long-term ROI when I'm looking at things that I purchase. Now, the Lucid Air Sapphire, the starting price, again, starting, $249,000. Over a quarter, that's a quarter million dollars on a disposable car. I can't imagine who's buying that, but they're not discounting that. And again, that's their most premium high level. Now, being a bit of a gearhead myself, the most disappointing thing is these cars all look the same to the average user. Kind of the reason why the Chevy SS, when they imported it from Australia, it failed because the average user couldn't see it being more different than a Malibu. Now, personally, having a V8 with a stick shift, Brembo brakes, that's a great combination. I think the Chevy SS was highly underrated. If you had a better body, it had better aesthetics on the outside, it would have sold out more. They also didn't spend a dollar in advertising. But the same issue is here with the Lucid. The most expensive one, again, if you're not really into the nuances of the little intricacies and differences, the average person, like my parents wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the cheapest, the lowest, and the best. So Lucid has been struggling. They got some extra investments from Saudi Arabia-based investment companies. And so they're having some cash infusions, which they definitely need. But it looks like they're going to decrease the price of their quote-unquote entry-level vehicles. I joke because this is more money than most Americans make in a year. But the average American salary in the United States is near about $33,000 per year. And also, for the people who complain about the 1%, and in terms of privilege, you should, be, you should feel very fortunate to be in the United States and make 35,000 35, years, $1,000 a year, because globally you are in the 1%, relatively speaking. Now, I'm not saying you're gonna be, you know, whining and dining and fine cigars, but always kind of gives you a good reminder of what you have. But I digress. In terms of lucid pricing, they're decreasing the pricing of some of their entry-level vehicles. Now, it looks like 
they're reducing the price of their Air Pure, which has nothing to do with Febreze. I, that, how that branding partnership didn't come together is beyond me. But apparently they have a car called the Air Pure. Now, the Air Pure, they're going to cut that by $5,000. So now it's just a mere $82,400, which is still double the average American income. But it's down from $87,400. Ooh, what a deal. They're also going to cut the pricing of their touring and their grand touring models. It looks like they're going to cut those by about $12,400. So the new prices for those two, respectively, is going to be $95,000 and $125,600. Which, again, right now is a disposable vehicle. We will eventually, with all technologies, we'll, get to, we'll eventually get to the point, I believe, where we have a new battery technology where it's a long-term ROI. But even then, you're locked into the manufacturer like a smartphone. It's not going to be like a Toyota Corolla. It'll last a million miles and a quarter of a century. My parents still drive a 2001 Honda Accord. That thing is bulletproof because it's an inline four-cylinder engine and Honda has exceptional engineering, which personally was why I'm a little... I'm one of those folks who prefer a non-EV for my daily driver. But again, that's just my three cents. It used to be two cents, but with the 40-year hyperinflation, I got charged a little bit more. It should be four cents, but I'm a generous man. Two, three cents it is. Now, going over to the culture part of the podcast, you have Bud Light being removed from store shelves and having their space reduced. Now, in terms of a business with physical products, this is one of if not the worst things to possibly happen. One of my favorite shows I like to watch when I have time at the gym, or more accurately when I'm running at the gym, is Shark Tank. And many of them are very successful, they're really good, they have a lot of the sales on the e-commerce, and there is a, an allure where they want to be in storefronts. And for certain products, it makes sense, such as controlled substances, where you have alcohol, depending on what state you live in, you may or may not be able to order it to your house or order it online. It is very state-by-state state dependent. But on average, they usually flourish on a storefront. I know Drizzle app is growing exponentially, but averages here. And when it comes to certain products, you want to be on the store shelves. One of those valuable spots on the planet, is, it's almost a joke in a business, but the most valuable real estate is a Walmart shelf. Because companies would do anything to get there. It is life-changing. That's why Kevin O'Leary, one of the Shark Tank entrepreneurs, his life changed because of the learning software he developed. And the real spike, when you look at the hockey stick of his business, where you have you know consistent sales, then all of a sudden you have a hockey stick where it ups, increases exponentially, he got a contract with Walmart. And it's very, very straightforward in terms of your negotiations. You go there, say, hey, Walmart basically tells you, we need this product at this price, po this price, point, this price point, say yes or no. And when you get your product on that shelf, on that real estate, it's invaluable. People spend their whole lives trying to get that one meeting with Walmart or one meeting with Target to get their product on that shelf. Because having the consumer walk by it is life-changing. So keep in mind all that, the vital importance for certain products to be on a physical shelf. And now you have Bud Light because of their business blunder starting April 1st, not a joke, in which, of course, we all know by now, they sent a free promo can with Dylan Mulvaney's face on it, who is a controversial because Dylan Mulvaney is a trans activist whose average audience on the TikTok is in their teens. You had a big boycott. They lost $28 billion in stock valuation and $390 million in sales. That is when you compare the same time period of Q2 from last year to this year. $400 million in sales, or specifically $390 million. That's, again, Anheuser-Busch InBev is a multi-trillion dollar valuated company. They got 51 or 52 brands that they own, including Budweiser, Bud Light, Anheuser-Busch. And they also have, you know, uh, Michael Moultra, a couple of them. But still, $400 million about, that is terrible news. And stores are starting to feel this. And distributors are starting to feel this. And stores, anecdotally speaking, um, I'm in Texas, the best state ever, obviously. Now, when I go to the grocery store, I can't help but notice when I walk by a beer aisle, consistently there's one spot that's empty in which that's having, the sales are really good, in other words. The products get there, they ship, they sell. That's Yangling. I actually bought the first case of Yangling for a podcast interview a couple weeks back where one of the guests wanted to try something out. I never bought it before, and granted, I'm not a beer connoisseur. I appreciate a spirits drink when the occasion calls for it. But we had Yangling Light, and or I think they call it Flight, but it is light. Although not, it's pretty heavy. You could, you got to pick it up. A little dad joke there, I guess. But it tastes pretty darn good. And again, I think I got the last case of the bottles. When I looked at the Anheuser-Busch InBev products, 
they were very much at this top. I actually took a Sharpie. Some might say I'm a little bit of a rebel in my graffiti. I put a little, little dot with my Sharpie and a date on a case of Bud Light. And when I'm fortunate, I, um, I'll shop weekly and I'll check, is that case that I marked still there? And it's happened two or three times where it's still there. In terms of a grocery store and sales cycle, that's terrible. And because they are not moving the units, all these stores, again, grocery stores are cutthroat. They sometimes lose money on alcohol sales just to get people in the door. On traditional grocery stores, it's a 2% profit margin in terms of the industry. That's why there's no company having a startup to go in there. You have companies like Amazon with more money than, than they can fathom. They bought the boutique grocery store known as Whole Foods, which again, is organic, more expensive, ideally more profit. But name me one startup in the past 20 years that's a grocery store. Everyone we go to, Kroger is over, I believe, 90 years old. You got Walmart, same thing. Walmart, I believe, was uh, 60, what was it, 63 founded. All, fries uh, on the West Coast, electronic store and grocery store, over 50 years ago as well. A lot of these stores are legacy. They've been around for a while. And they're starting to lose money on these products. So they are shrinking shelf space. And in some cases, they're getting rid of Bud Light completely because they're not making money on it. And also, it's not the loss leader it must, once was. Even if they were losing money on the product in terms of they sell it for $10, but it costs them $11, they put it at the back of the store similar to milk. Most stores, they'll lose money on a gallon of milk, but they put it at the very back of the store so you're forced to go to the store and you go to the very back, walking by more profitable items throughout the aisle. That's kind of um, the design of uh, Grocery Store 101. It's called a lost leader. Now, if they're not going to the store because you product no longer, it, the whole justification for having the product just vanishes. Now, they actually have Wilson Kors CEO co commenting on the situation. And not only did he say that from his experience talking to distributors, which again, they're one of the largest uh, beer companies as well. The big trifecta is, you know, Anheuser Bush and Bev, which I believe is the largest by revenue and the number of properties or number of brands that they own. But you also have Coors Light and you have Molson Coors. And you also have family owned Yangling, which is the most, the oldest brand in, or the oldest brewery in the United States as well. Now, Morrison Crowers noted that, again, Bud Light sales, again, are down about 30%, which, again, is hugely detrimental. Now, when asked for comment, Morrison Crowers said, no, in bars and other on-premise channels, the company has gained more than 12,000 tap handles in this quarter. So, Molson Coors, and again, a tap handle, you have a, a finite number of taps when you go to a bar. They only have so many taps at the bar, so they have to choose what kegs they buy to actually put into the, tap, into the taps. And a Bud Light is failing. You, got Molson, you have the Molson Coors CEO say they got 10,000 additional ones. They not, they, it might not be a one-to-one -one in terms of only displacing Bud Light, but that's a huge exponential increase. Now, when asked for comment in terms of what they're going to do from a business model, most of the CEO also said they're planning to spend 100, another $100 million on marketing on the second half of this year to keep up that sales momentum. And he said that our job is to maintain those gains that we've got. This is from the CEO of Molson Coors, Hatcherly. Uh, now, in terms of advertising, Molson Coors, a lot of people, in terms of the politics of beer, which again, I, as growing up, I never thought that would be a thing, but Molson Coors is being perceived much more as a apolitical or more conservative beer. From my personal perspective, I find it abhorrent that they actually had a marketing campaign in which they encouraged people to buy old cardboard materials and signs that had, you know, the typical six, uh, sexy women with a beer. You would mail it to them and they would ground it up and turn it into mulch and they would give it to female brewers to use as mulch to grow hops. They had like a hops exchange program. And as you can see behind me, I love business history. That's part of the reason I started this channel. Also, if you have a family video sign, I'll buy it. I really want to find one. I've been looking for like four years now. But it's one of those things where I find advertising, especially a fascinating historical note and business note, because it does change so fluidly with our culture. What was acceptable yesterday and what used to sell a product yesterday turns into something that can be detrimental to the brand, or in some cases, it can get the brand, quote unquote, canceled or boycotted. So it gives you a unique insight into the United States or other countries. If you collect other countries' advertising memorabilia, into what was popular at the time. It's everything from fast food logos, going from changing their logos to now you see fast food logos reverting back to the retro ones. And there's a lot of speculation on why they're doing that. Maybe this quality was better back then, but they have Miller, I guess, but Miller Lite thought, oh yeah, let's destroy all the sexy standees and the sexy posters because they wanted to pretend to be a feminist, and they, feminist brand. 
And they had a silly part of that advertising commercial where they said like, oh yeah, you know, we're, women, women were around when they first made beer. Women were among, oh yeah, they said women were among the first people to make beer. Oh yeah, no duh, women were among, guess what? Women were among, what, what, was, the other, what, what was the other category? Oh yeah, men. Which again, it, beer doesn't have to be a, a gender issue, but they are certainly not a conservative, in my opinion, I didn't appreciate that advertising campaign, which is why I wouldn't consider them a 100% conservative brand. They're more than Bud Light. The bar is so low, it's basically buried these days when it comes to brand integrity. But in terms of pub recession, I know I'm I'm not the, I'm one of the few people who care about historical um, preservation when it comes to advertising. But I thought that was a business blunder on their end. Now, in terms of their marketing campaign, if they're a prudent business decision, I would think is basically just focus on the company's history as well as being apolitical. They, I think the public perception and the cultural perception of Molson Coors, as well as uh, Coors Light, those two different, separate two different entities, is if they were to come out with a Patriot commercial or a, a football commercial or some types of sports balls commercial, the consumers would still feel they're authentic and they're not patronizing them. Contrast that to Bud Light. Bud Light's trying to push the what used to be their traditional commercials and they're being mocked ridiculously. venomously. They came out with that cliche Clydesdale commercial talking about 9-11 and other, and other moments in US history. And it was almost as if they asked chat GDP, make me in a pro-America commercial, which again, no one felt that it was authentic because of their business blunder, as well as the CEO coming out after the business blunder and being basically being a politician saying they, they wouldn't rule out doing the same thing they did again. It, and again, from his perspective, I understand he has to, he almost has to be a politician in that regard. But I almost think it'd be, if they were to admit their mistake, they would gain some customers back. Certainly not all of them by now. It's been months since that business blunder. But in terms of the culture perspective, their store shelves are shrinking for Bud Light. It'll be interesting to see how, how are they going to turn on their sales and regain that shelf space? Again, it takes years and sometimes decades to get on a shelf space in retail is vital for some brands to grow and develop. Will they be able to get the opportunity again? Will the stores and distributors trust them not to make another business blunder to alienate so many customers and have a ripple effect that hurts everyone? Because again, it's not just the Bud Light sales reps that are making more, less money. It's the distributors who move the product. It's the grocery store owners who sell the product. It's the bar owner who sells the product as well. It's a huge ecosystem and they poisoned the whole thing. Everyone's boycotting the left, the right, the middle, the people who just want to be left alone. The people who don't want to hurt their mouths with the piss water beer. A lot of people are boycotting it. Will it be, from a cultural perspective, will they be able to, per, to pull out that nose dive? I'm a little pessimistic at this point. I'd still say the cliche Magic 8-Ball would say, for Bud Light, Outlook is not so good. Other interesting cultural news, you have Mr. Beast suing Beast Burger, or rather, more accurately, the white labeler behind it, and he wants to shut them down. Now. This is a white label company. When it comes to business and what a white label is, it's an instance where the brand isn't really making the product. So they're basically licensing Mr. Beast's brand and a separate company is making it. Mr. Beast doesn't have a Beast Burger company that he himself makes. It's very much a traditional white label. So you have a company, or in this case, a company with many, many restaurants, they're making the product, they slap on the other label, the brand label of Mr. Beast, and it's known as white labeling. And some people, again, it's, it's not pejorative things. Um, some people might think it's not authentic. Uh, there are a lot of businesses that do it. Um, actually, BlackBerry back in the day, that's well, how they got started was these OEM contracts or original equipment manufacturer contracts. But I digress, getting back to this situation, it turns out that Mr. Beast, again, most viral YouTuber in history, billions of views, billions, I got so many billions, everyone has to see me, I give away the wealth, the wealth everywhere, the burgers, the, the chocolate. It's one of those things where there's a little silver lining to everything in life and a little comical relief. And some, some might argue every politician contributes something, even if it's just mildly, mild entertainment, but I digress. Now, this comes as people are actually coming to see the food from these Beast Burgers as, quote, inedible, quote, revolting. And yeah, Jimmy, Don, Jimmy uh, Donaldson, who's the real name of Mr. Beast, he's advertising the hell out of this. And it makes sense. It's his brand. He wants to, you know, get the word out there. But... It looks like things aren't things are going pretty sour, or in this case, pretty uh, raw, as raw as the beef they presumably serve. Now, he filed a lawsuit in New York, New York Court District last Monday, accusing the company known as Virtual Dining Concepts. Now, that's the company that's actually making the products and executing this initiative and putting his label on top of it. 
Now, he's suing them on the grounds that they're damaging his reputation by selling undercooked hamburgers and cold fries. And he has his name on it. So, of course, in terms of his brand being tarnished, again, I'm not a judge. I have better hair than them. Although, maybe I, will, I did have that George Washington hair. I should have brought it back for this. I Let me know if you want to see more costumes, but I digress. But it's one of those issues where his brand is certainly being tarnished because the perception, a lot of people don't know that the company Virtual Dining Concepts is the one behind this. They thought Jimmy and his team was doing it. A down, so a, a downside of a white label situation, sometimes an upside if it, they do a good job. But it looks like in terms of the suit, it says that Virtual Dining Concepts has repeatedly damaged his reputation by not ensuring all burger quality and times serving up raw food. And Interestingly enough, it also claims that Donaldson has yet to receive a dime from the venture, which is probably why he's suing as well. Again, this is someone who's worth more copious amounts of money than I could possibly fathom. These burgers are also, you know, geographically priced. In some areas, there's as much as, much as $10 while still being rated a 2 out of 5, which again, I know mass scores in the United States are all-time low, but let's just say 2 out of 5 is not such a good rating. Now, interestingly enough, as you're trying to file this lawsuit, they get back into the numbers, and it looks like a great example of people who, again, I'm not talking about Jimmy. I'm talking about, it seems like when I talk to people about business, there's a big disconnect between what is revenue and, and what is the actual profit of a company. Now, going down into the depths of this, you're looking at all these documents, and I'm trying to come up, bringing up the actual statistics. Uh, and these burgers, are, these pictures are quite horrific. You, the um, past most disgusting things I've ever seen. Now, in terms of the numbers, it looks like last July, so that was two years into the venture, Donaldson bragged that they had made an astonishing amount of money. In fact, more than $100 million in revenue. AKA, that's $100 million coming into their business before they take into account all of the costs associated with the business. Now, it looks like the firm started with 300 locations in the US, but they expanded to 1,000 across North America. And in January, the cash earnings and the operations stood at $150 million. Now, the downside is when they account for the 30% fee paid to the actual locations who make them, as well as the cost of the ingredients, the shipping, the packaging, the storage, and their expenses, the net profit is only around $30 million. Now, again, that's still a great amount of money, but relative to $150 million, not as profitable as one might think. And interestingly enough, that amount of money is supposed to be split between Jimmy, a.k.a. Mr. Beast, and Virtual Dying Concepts, but hasn't been split yet. So I suspect that part of the reason he's suing is to get his actual money that he's actually entitled to, because he's lending them his brand, his most, his most valuable thing about him, similar to the Dallas Cowboys. They haven't won a game since the floppy disk was popular, I believe. Which again, if you're, uh, I might be aging myself. When you look at you're saving a document in Microsoft Word, if you see the top, there's a little icon up there, that's a floppy disk. So it's not just a save icon, it was actual media that you slip into the computer and save on it. But I digress, the Dallas Cowboys are four, four plus billion dollar valuation because they license their brand. So if you pay them well, a couple hundred thousand dollars, you can be the official dentist of the Cowboys or what have you. And you can slap the logo on your building and your sales will increase because of that perceived brand association. Licensing is a huge industry in and of itself. and Again, it's one of the most important things about it. In this case, he's lending out what is the most viable YouTube channel in history to this restaurant company, and they're certainly not doing their due diligence and actually executing properly. So again, looking at the facts, just again, I'm no legal scholar, but with all the information I have at hand at the moment, it certainly seems like he has a case, and I don't know what the pushback is gonna be from this company, or how they're gonna overcome it in terms of the court situation. But as I say, time shall tell. Other interesting cultural news, you have Hollywood finally admitting they can't think of anything new, so they're just going to do remakes from now on. Now, I've had this joke for years, especially about Disney, where if you look at the quality of a Disney film past, shoot, 10 years, I would say, it's basically a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. A fun little home experiment is if you photocopy a picture, and you take a photo, then you photocopy that picture, and you photocopy that picture, the actual quality of the picture degrades time and time again, which is a perfect metaphor for most Disney films. They just remake them and just make it worse and worse and worse. And Disney is by no means alone. You have, uh, I believe Paramount Pictures owns, or no, 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 Universal Studios 
they own the rights to Fast and Furious, which, again, if you're a gearhead, probably annoys hell out of you because the amount, or actually, if you have a modicum of intelligence, just because there's no logic. It's or if you forget about logic, physics, and I maybe if you had a Bud Light and your brain just melts, you can enjoy the film. You just can't think. What started off as amateur street racers stealing VCRs and tube TVs, which is hilarious to think the series is that old. That and there was a time those were premium products in America that people really wanted. It was a VCR, and especially the VCR built in the TV, the little small combo that's about that big, also that deep in terms of size. It's a cubic cube. But it used to be, again, there's the whole controversy about the intake manifold blowing up in the first film in the Eclipse and then not the car still magically working. But there was still a semblance of logic in the original films, I would argue. And then they just became a copy-paste of again, 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 and got to the point where I could write a Fast and Furious Fun experiment. Let's, together, we could write a Fast and Furious movie right now. Let's write a script. Copy-paste from the last film. You have a couple cool cars, usually sponsored by Dodge or Stellantis, which owns Dodge. You have a cool Nissan GTR with what used to be uh, Paul Walker, which is cool. Got the Dodge Challenger, Din Diesel. And nowadays, it's so ridiculous. You have some type of super bad guy. You have the main action, the main heroes of the film are able to somehow have execute skill sets they've never had before, like hacking, also competitive fighting. Remember, remember they're street racers, but now they can do it now. Street racing means you can now have all these magical capabilities. But what else do you need to insert? So we have a cliche bad guy who doesn't really have much intelligence besides, or motive besides being bad. Uh, we have Vin Diesel have something, say something like family. That's more Rocky or Sylvester Stallone. But remember, this is a copy of a copy of a copy. So that very well, maybe his voice degrades that much or improves depending on who you like more in terms of Vin Diesel versus Sylvester Stallone. But perhaps it actually is a good metaphor. The voice, it'll be the same text of family. I don't need, you don't need that. We got family. Hey, I guess that's, yeah, I digress. But you get the idea. And then if a bad guy comes, there's big explosions. The movie's about two hours. I just wrote a, a script for the Fast and Furious. It, it's not that hard. It's just a copy paste. Now, movie studios, again, they're making less and less money as less and less people go to physical movie theaters, which is where they used to make a lot of their money. And remember, when you see the box office value, they split that with movie theaters. They're not getting all that whole amount. So it's one of those issues where they're making more money every year in terms of, on average, there are outliers that make a billion dollars, which is why they make the Fast and Furious movies still, but they're making less money on average. Streaming is a huge competition vector for them. And to take a risk in terms of making a new idea, it might fail. So they decide we're not going to take a risk anymore. We're just going to do things we already have done because we think it'll make money. Disney has shown it will not, on average, Disney's lost about a trillion dollars on films past couple of years. So that's no by no means a guarantee for success like it used to be with Marvel, like the Marvel comic movies. Again, they're just a clappy pace in terms of giant hero, superheroes come in, big computers make CGI, go boom, and everyone's happy at the end and no one really dies. That did make billion dollars consistently for Marvel for several years as the fans drew, uh, fans are drones. They all went to the films without asking questions or I perhaps caring about acting quality, but nevertheless, it made billions of dollars all the time. But even they are starting to decrease their revenue and decrease the profitability of the films. I suspect partially because those computers are not cheap and CGI isn't cheap and that's mostly just a CGI movie with uh, one or two actors in a suit or sometimes just a green uh, suit saying a couple of lines. But let's actually hear from the horse's mouth or the donkey's mouth, perhaps. Now, this is Paramount CEO Brian Robbins he actually announced the end of the, con the end of all their original content, and they'll only focus on remakes of existing intellectual property that they own. And it looks like when he asked for comment, he said, "Quote: Outside of Barbie, things are going not so hot for Hollywood studios, who write the creative community's diminishing residual checks." Unquote. Robin continues to say, "The cable business is vaporizing. Movies have been eclipsed by TikTok and YouTube and streaming, which has supposed which was supposed to usher a golden era of entertainment." turned out to be too expensive to maintain, unquote. He has a good point. When the idea of streaming first came out, it thought it was going to change the world. In a way, it did. It kind of made it so that people didn't want the cable box. It decreased the need to have a cable box. But you're seeing the same issues with cable. Back when Netflix first hit the market, it was very much more economical, especially when they went into streaming. And there are a lot more options. Now you're getting less options in terms of the actual materials per streaming platform. 
but the cost is increasing, partially because of the infrastructure behind it. All these things are on, usually on AWS or Amazon Web Services, which again, there's no cloud, it's just someone else's computer, a joke in IT. But think of it as opposed to streaming the, having the video streamed on your computer, it's in a computer or a server in a, in a data center across the globe. Now, those costs have gone up exponentially. Not only do they have the actual hardware for the infrastructure, but also have heating, cooling, electricity for the building, they have network connectivity, networking. The costs add up and they go up exponentially especially when it comes to all of that data and the storage and all of that. And a lot of these companies, they're not making money on streaming, they're losing money. So it'll be interesting to see all these studios are doing streaming, everyone is doing it. How many of them can survive? Now you have the actors and the writers, actors, actresses and writers all, all on strike, further proving that AI will probably take their jobs as most movies are just copy paste. But you also have AI in terms of, they have CGI technologies where they actually have a whole movie just made by a computer. And there are very few actors who can actually sell out a movie just based on their reputation and their long-term acting career. There's a lot, there's very few of those superstars left. I mean, maybe Tom Cruise, people will see anything he's in. Chris Pratt, I believe, he's very popular. People will see a movie if he's in it. Pierce Brosnan, if you had to sell the good old James Bonds, but the time of that is long gone. But there's very few actors and actresses, good old supply and demand. There's so many people in acting right now. There's not a lot of quote unquote superstars that they themselves can really sell a movie because you want to see them. It's partially because of the allure of actors and actresses is all but gone because we know everything about their lives thanks to all those silly TMZs, XYZ, Banana, Falcon News outlets covering them. So it's not really much of a mystery to make you intrigued and want to see them more. They just, actually these days, they don't even shut the heck up on social media. And granted, a lot of people still worship them regardless. Now. Specifically, when he talks about the box office, Robbins explained, quote, box office profits are down at 20% compared to pre-pandemic levels, unquote. So they're on an attack on all fronts, and now they actually have the actors and the writers working against them as well. They want higher residual, residual checks that don't exist. One of the issues of these unions in this case, or many cases, not all cases, calm down people in the comment section, but they only want the upside, they don't want the risk. So if business loses money, they don't want to have their paycheck go down. But if the business goes up and they make a big profit, they want a bonus, so they want more money. Which, again, is not cohesive to long-term business success, I would say, in nearly all cases. So, with Hollywood in particular, they have all these threat vectors, not just internally, but now externally as well. I can't help but think this is going to accelerate dramatically their shift to embracing artificial intelligence and more CGI creating content for them. And when it comes to AI and computer technologies, Coming up with new ideas is a little tricky, but in terms of a copy-paste of what they're already doing, that seems like the perfect use case for this type of technology. So we'll see how quickly they adopt it, but I can't help but think this is the writing on the wall, which is perhaps, perhaps a lot more creative and original and legible than the writing from the previous writers. Moderate, pun, or burn? That's for you to decide. Other fascinating cultural news, you have Starbucks being sued for discrimination, again, for racial equity policies that were recently rolled out. Now, this is also coming off the news of a recent lawsuit where they fired a manager by the name of Shannon Phillips. Now, they fired her basically for being white. It was a situation in which you had two African-American gentlemen walk into a Starbucks store. They weren't buying anything. They were, and I believe they wanted to use the bathroom as well, which in terms of social and cultural acceptance is ridiculous. If you don't buy anything, you don't deserve the bathroom. It's not a public it's not, it's not their job to be a public facility. That's why a common courtesy, my dad told me when I was a kid, if we were on a road trip, and even if the car didn't need gas, we would buy some type of drink or beverage from a gas station, convenience store, because sometimes, it, even if it's just owned by a mom and pop or a company or a franchise, whoever owns it, they still deserve compensation for you utilizing their facilities. It's a common courtesy you help each other out in terms of supporting the business and you're giving, they're providing a service. Now. In this case, they claimed that they were waiting for a meeting and it got pretty heated. They had to call the police because they wanted to kick him out. And, and of course, it was perceived as racism because nowadays, it's just, our funny fathers would be spinning in their graves. Everyone is talking about all about racism. Ridiculous, beyond all belief. Just, I find it abhorrent. I'm one of those folks where when my family came to the United States from, um, from Cuba, it's one of those things where we always judge, just like funny fathers, judge a person by a man's merit, by his actual actions, not where he came from. What are his morals, values, and actions? But 
I digress. In this case, Starbucks freaked out. The CEO actually shut down the stores for a sensitivity diversity training day. And the trouble started to occur when they started to intervene with this specific store. Now, she was actually the district manager for many stores. Now, ironically enough, the store, the store manager for that specific store was African-American. He was not punished for this situation that went viral and had a big backlash. But she was told by corporate Starbucks to punish employees who were white. Now, again, that's quite literally the definition of discrimination based on race. And fascinating enough, this recently came out. I didn't see a huge backlash. I would have thought there'd be more people fascinating because in terms of legal precedence, this is perhaps one of the best known recent cases where you have a successful lawsuit where someone is discriminated for being white. Usually those are wa uh, washed under the rugs or whitewashed, pun moderately intended. Now, this recent one comes from Starbucks being sued after implementing, quote unquote, racial equity policies that are actually recommended by a legal firm that is associated with uh, former President Barack Obama's uh, former attorney general, Eric Holder. Now, one of these articles is actually thanks to the Free Beacon, and they dive in with a little bit more of the details here. Now, it looks like Eric Holder's firm was charged as much as $2,295 per hour. Oh, geez, Louise. Another thing to be always concerned about when you're ever touched with a lawyer, their, their time is quite, quite valuable. That is astronomical. Now, in terms of their actual assessment, they, yet Starbucks come out to this legal firm, they ask them for advice on what could they be doing better? Not, not if it was legal, but what would they suggest? Which is fascinating to think a legal firm recommended this when in fact it's, it's pretty much the definition, right? It is illegal. Now, it looks like they were trying to, they're actually also looking at tying executive pay to diversity targets setting setting spending goals for quote quote diverse suppliers unquote and launching a mentorship for quote bipoc unquote okay i need to check urban dictionary what is bipoc and i'm actually not being sarcastic i forget all the many of these okay that is black indigenous people of color can be people of cuba so racist i'm kidding obviously Okay, so it says they have program, which again, mentorship programs only for them. That's, again, that's racist in it because you, you can't exclude, they're excluding multiple races and multiple people from having the opportunity to apply for that scholarship. Now, it looks like they're having a couple of these lawsuits come up against them. And interestingly enough, this is pretty widespread and you're, I think we're going to see more and more of these cases boiling to the surface. Now, they say that through its, quote, racial equity audit, quote, quote, practice, the firm actually continued rubber stamping race-based initiatives for its clients, including BlackRock, Citigroup, and Verizon. So this legal firm with Eric Holder has had perhaps the most, well, some of the most successful, prestigious companies in the world hire them as well. And it'll be interesting to see, are they going to be sued as well? Now, granted, they also have more money you can possibly fathom so you could certainly pay off and sell outside of court so fiscally speaking this is not going to have a dent on any of these companies just to be forthcoming in terms of why i'm fascinated with is will it be a cultural shift from a consumer perspective where some consumers are maybe frustrated or they feel alienated because these are coming to the surface and a lot of these programs there's they're just all there many of them are illegal and you actually have some there is, with BlackRock, they had minority-only scholarships at BlackRock, and they actually had a bonus scheme linking executive pay to diversity targets at Verizon. And again, diversity is great. Diversity of opinion is even greater. And it's one of those things where you're also excluding people based on the race by de facto. So that's where, when you look at the cultural perspective and the lawsuits, that's what they're going to be arguing is that you're discriminating other races, and you're excluding them from this, and this, they do not have an equal opportunity to these programs, to these scholarships, to these types of positions. And we'll see. Well, do you think, let me know in the comments, do you think their revenue is going to go down? Are people going to start boycotting them? I mean, most of these companies are already doing it. Or will consumers be overwhelmed and just feel like they can't boycott them because there's so much? I think the Bud Light boycott was successful because it's a very, very specific brand and everyone can see it and the competition is three inches away in the freezer, or more accurately, the refrigerator section of the grocery stores. 
that was very, very, very simple. Some of these larger companies, depending on where you, like Verizon, for example, depending on where you live, that may only be the only telecom provider or internet provider for your family because some of those companies, especially telecom internet companies, they divide them by geography. Some might say that's anti-competitive or more like a gang because they're agreeing not to compete, but another topic for another time, perhaps. Now, going over to the political part of the podcast, you have Trump has a Department of Justice and the Biden administration put him in check on the chessboard, or is the checkmate? Now, Trump has many, many issues in terms of the presidential nomination. He is beating pretty much everyone in the primaries by every metric and every poll I evaluate. When it comes to him against DeSantis, you have Vivek Ramaswamy, you have Mike Pence pretending to be running, I believe. You have many people in the primaries, but the gap, the last poll was 37 points ahead. So Trump was 37 points ahead of DeSantis, and DeSantis was the closest to him. So for all intents and purposes, with the data we have right now, most likely he will be the Republican nominee. Now, the downside, obviously, or not obviously, depending on how much you tune into politics, he has a couple of indictments against him, quite a few. Now, specifically, he is facing 78 felony charges across three criminal cases. Now, if he is convicted, according to Politico, the maximum charge for each of these, he could face 641 years in prison. And believe it or not, he would not have his access to his copious amounts of McDonald's and believe Diet Coke. Although that makes him maybe invincible because of the preservatives, but I digress. That's a quite a long time and he is more elderly. He would, that, that is basically a life sentence. Now, it looks like apparently none of these charges against him actually currently have a minimum requirement, interestingly enough. But, and he also has no criminal record historically. He, he has settled a lot outside of court, but right now, legally speaking, he has a pretty clean criminal record. And when you look at charges, when anyone goes to court, the judges on average are more lenient if they do not have a criminal background. You, he, many people say he has abhorrent actions, uh, opinions, but from a criminal perspective, he's pretty much clean in that regard. Now, in terms of this topic, I can't help but hear a banana republic, not the um, cliched uh, clothing company that 12 people still shop at, but both on the left and the right, we hear this term every once in a while. So I thought, I thought it might be helpful to define it because in terms of my evaluation and my consumption of other different medias, no one's really taking the time to define it. So again, this is a, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, although unfortunately I don't even think they make physical encyclopedias anymore, but I digress. According to Britannica, a banana republic is a political and economical unstable country with an econo economy dependent solely on the export of natural resources. The term originally, the term originated in 1904 to describe Honduras and Costa Rica under the economic exploitation of U.S. corporations, such as the United Fruit Company. Um, that's unquote. That's the definition. Now, there's also a lot of negative connotations, such as putting your political opponents in jail. And a lot of people are drawing these parallels and using this metaphor more and more. Culturally speaking, it's fascinating to see what, what, what are the common things that come up in terms of metaphors. And some of them are really hot, but some are reoccurring. They just flashbang, but I digress. Now, it looks like in terms of historically, never in the United States have you had a current president and the Department of Justice go after a political enemy. Well, perhaps, well, actually, no, once before. That was back in 2016 with Obama and Trump and the whole... Russia Gate and the files that were turned out to be everyone's calling him Russian cat spa and they illegally spied on him, but of course it turned out to be bogus. But that didn't stop the narrative being painted, of course. Now, given all this data, he, no matter what, he's going to have to spend a copious amount of time in multiple uh, states. He's going to, have to go in New York, Georgia, a couple of these lawsuits, um, a couple of these cases. They require him to physically be in these areas for the court proceedings. Now, not only that, fiscally speaking, going to court is never cheap. As, as we talked about earlier with the Starbucks, where Starbucks hired the attorneys to ironically help them with their equity, but now they're getting sued because of it. As Eric Holder's legal firm, Obama's former attorney general, they're charging about, I think, $2,500, right under $2,500 per hour. So legal fees are never cheap. So you have Trump, not only geographically, he's locked in to these courts. He can't not show it might be highly entertaining to not show up to these court proceedings. I don't recommend that. But instead of being on the campaign trail and going to the, again, every presidential election, 
left or right center, the politicians who are running, they need to spend time in swing states. There are certain states where I would laugh if Trump spent one minute in the state of Illinois. They voted Democrat for decades. Or if Trump spent one minute in Montana, which historically is a very red state. The return on investment just isn't there. You're not going to flip those states. They're going to vote the way they are regardless. So when it comes to campaigning, physical campaigning, they go to the flip states or the purple states, the states where, historically speaking, they go back and forth. You look at states like Iowa, you have um, Ohio. They go back and forth quite a bit. That's where you need to have the greatest impact and win those independent voters. If you're locked in these court proceedings, he can't go there. And Trump, I would say one of his um, positives in terms of his campaigning is he is good at getting um, getting a crowd excited to vote for him. He is extremely bombastic, energetic. He's a lot of people have compared him to a stand-up comedian. He is good with crowds. He's great with crowd work and interacting with people. A lot of people, independent reporters, they know that he actually stays after a rally and speaks individually with the people, as opposed to other politicians who just quickly acquiesce to their limousine, as almost as if they detest the people who vote for them and they want to get back to their palaces. But I digress. Trump has a reputation for hanging out with the people, being a man of the people. Many people who like him perceive him of that. If he wants to win independent voters, he needs to get in front of them physically. And this is something where I also compare to um, any, like a sales role, like my IT company. I always joke half the battle is showing up because a lot of people just don't show up. Showing up to a meeting physically or even just doing a drop off or prospecting, you know, knocking on doors. Showing up physically makes a big difference. So Trump is locked into, he can't get out of these right now. Even if you think he's innocent, he has to go to these court proceedings. So he's going to have to be spent all these times in all these states. That's times he's not in those swing states, not campaigning. Not only that, physically speaking, when you're donating to his campaign, he's using that money to defend himself. Now, from a political perspective, I think it'd be more, probably more politically beneficial if Trump set up a separate legal fund. Now, I understand people who love Trump, they don't the people who really like Trump probably don't care where the money goes as long as it's helping him. But this is also hurting his presidential campaign because a big part of politics, whether you like it or not, I kind of find it abhorrent to disdain, but Democrats and Republicans, they both spend mil- hundreds of millions, billions of dollars on TV ads, Facebook ads, all, all the different advertisements to get in front of those independent voters that, again, those are the hardest ones. Those are the ones you have to flip to your side in order to win. And that money, instead of going to that, is going to his legal fund. Personally, I think it probably would have been a prudent decision to have a separate fund for his legal fund as opposed to just having one fund. Because then the people who want to specifically support him for the legal cases can donate specifically to that. But either way, resources are being taken away from his campaign. So that means he has less money for those commercials. He has less money for ballot harvesting. I think Republicans finally woke up, woke up to the fact that they need where legal to ballot harvest. That's why Democrats killed them in the past couple of elections. They are they are much, much prudent. And it's also the geographically the density of cities, which are much, usually on average much more democratic, their voting race. They can go and they knock on one apartment complex and get hundreds of people registered to vote and get help them to mail in votes. It's a disadvantage for Republicans. But they figured out, hey, I, mean, I always tell them they should have thought of it like taxes. You have to play with the rules you have at hand. Don't, don't, Republicans are great at whining and complaining. Oh, we lost. Yeah, win. Here's the rules right here. Use the rules to your advantage. Win. Don't whine and complain that the other guy did something you didn't do when you both have the same set of rules. Now, granted, independents have a disadvantage because they have a separate set of rules, which I have a disdain for since many of my beliefs are more independent. But I digress. Another topic for another time. So Trump has a lot of things going against him at the moment. Now, He's locked in his finances. They're being attacked because, again, he has to pay to defend himself in these court proceedings. And geographically, he's locked into those locations. So those are two big negative things against him. And perhaps one of the worst things for him right now is the media and the attention. Usually, not on average, when the, we have election campaigns, usually it's a referendum. Whoever the referendum is, is against or the focus is on, that's usually who's going to lose. I mean... Trump loves talking about himself, and the media loves him partly because they get a lot of clicks from him. And there's a lot of incentive there. And Democrats, they love it because it helped them, I believe, win the past two, you had the midterms and the 2020 election. The focus is all on Trump. 
Republicans, I think right now, if they want to have a chance of winning, they need to focus every campaign commercial on Biden's fiscal policies, talk about inflation, talk about the jobs, jobs that are precipitously drying up, talk about the economy, talk about crime, things that people actually, that people have a vested interest in in their communities as well. Those topics are very viral in terms of politically getting people active into the voting booth. Again, the United States has a pretty low turnout for voters. Kind of embarrassing to say, consider it's one of the few benefits you have when you pay for your, when you pay taxes, you go and vote. And I would also argue it's a better of society, but I digress. Yeah, those issues go to go up against him as well. So now with these, all these indictments, all these charges, all the media is focused on Trump. It's helping him in terms of the primary. You see that gap between him and DeSantis is getting more and more and more. DeSantis, they need to inject some energy into that campaign. He's fired one third of his campaign um, uh, teammates, which I think he needs to get rid of some of those viruses because he started from a governor position. He was very successful. He went from winning by 1% to about 20% margin of vote. That's a big margin of victory change. No one's done that that I know of. So the Republican Party could certainly learn a thing or two about uh, from his last strategies, but they're not translating to his presidential um, aspirations. So when it comes to these indictments and all these charges, Republicans are rallying support around Trump because they are pointing out the double standards. So you have famously, you have Hillary Clinton with her email servers. She wiped them. And the reason the Department of Justice, to, Justice did not charge her is because she was running for president and they thought it'd be unbecoming in the United States. And they didn't want to have influence on the election. I don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if it's ironic, but it is quite disgusting that it seems the same exact charge is not against Trump. That is one of the things he's been accused of as well. So you have an issue where there's a clear double standard and there's a visceral reaction by many people of the right to want to support Trump because it does not feel fair, which is helping him in the primary. Now, the question is, is that going to help Democrats? Might that be a strategy by the Democrats to help them in the general election? A lot of people who aren't into politics, a lot of people who only tune in a minute a day or they may look at the headlines, which is perhaps the most inaccurate thing is just to look at headlines. But if they're not actually in politics, they might think Trump is unique in many of these violations and they might think he's just guilty. Now, legally, I think legally the cases against him are pretty stretched to say the least. But again, whether they're true or not, his name's in the papers. The perception against him is getting a negative from people are more, I would say, in the middle. Now, in terms of Trump's defense, I think one of the best defenses he's going to have is just asking, well, why did the Department of Justice not do this three and a half years ago? These things happened back in the day, which I guess, you know, 2020 is back in the day for relative to time. But why did they wait till now? Because from a strategic political perspective, it's certainly advantageous for this to be happening right now. Because from what I can tell, it is going to help Democrats in the midterms. So it'll be interesting to see what what is Trump going to do, because they're going even if they have a huge cash cash infusion to help fix the finances issues, he's still locked in geographically to those sites and he's not going to those states that he needs to win. Even if he picks an exceptional vice president who's really energetic and can go to those spots, that's still a huge limitation on his campaign. It'll be interesting to see what's the public perception of the situation. Let me know in the comments. Do you think this is fair? Do you think this is going to kneecap him in the general election so he'll know so the election is rigged in that regard? Let me know in the comments what you think. And as far as the success rate, time shall tell. Other interesting political news, you have the White House attempting to censor the Daily Wire and the proof is revealed. Now, this is according to the Just News with John Solomon and the White House sent a memo that suggests that the Biden White House wanted um, they sat down in meetings with Facebook executives asking if Facebook could tweak their algorithm to showcase stories from New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and other content posted over content posted by quote unquote polarizing conservative journalists and commentators unquote back in 2021. Now, it looks like several memos show a series of meetings with White House digital creator Rob Flearley and the executives at Facebook. Now, Specifically on April 14th, 2021, the White House dig, uh, Digital Director Rob asked Facebook whether it could promote the New York Times and Wall Street Journal over the Daily Wire. Quote, if you were able to change the algorithm so people were more likely to see New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and any authoritative news source other than the Daily Wire, Tommy Lair and polarizing people, you wouldn't have a mechanism to check that check the material impact. And the Daily Wire 
in terms of politically, they're a political music company headquartered out in Nashville, Tennessee, one of the fastest growing companies. And they also filed a lawsuit against the U.S. government with the OSHA VAX mandate in which the United States was trying to use the OSHA um, or, uh, department and saying that you had to get the poke because it was a workplace health issue. That was their logic and Daily Wire successfully sued them to prevent that from being a mandate. Now, of course, the First Amendment says the government can't take away your free speech. Well, I guess most Americans used to believe that as well. But they also can't use independent parties to do that as well. The government can't order Facebook to censor you. That's illegal. So, again, it seems like a cut and dry legal case. Will it actually get any, will it, will it actually get a favorable outcome? That, that's where I'm a little bit pessimistic. I'm, I'm not so sure. Time shall tell. Other interesting political news, you have California versus AI cars. Could help soar the technology or kneecap the industry. Now, I say that because California is one of the largest car markets on the planet. I kid you not, it's the 10th. I looked it up in terms of, and this is statistics from 2019 based on the new car registrations. And California is quite literally the 10th largest market on the planet. And California came in at a yearly registrations of 1.89 million vehicles. Italy, Italy, Little Italia with the Lamborghinis and Ferraris, they came in at 1.92 million. France came in at 2.21, Bugatti. UK came in at 2.31, Brazil came in at 2.67, India came in at 2.96 million, Germany came in at 3.61 million, Japan came in at 4.3 million new cars registered, United States as a whole came in at 16.97 million, and China came in at 21.07 million new cars registered. So, as I clearly just said, it's a huge economy for new vehicles. That's why, also culturally, it's a fascinating thing where you see a lot of things pass politically and culturally. We'll see a trend in Canada leak down, or in fact, depending on your political belief, own to California, and then it'll go to the next United States. It's something that's has it's been, I was gonna say, is a quite a quite accurate theme that happens. It's happened several times. Now, it looks like a California state board is set to vote in August, on August 10th on whether to allow tech companies, specifically Waymo and Cruz, to launch a massive expansion of driverless taxi fleets in San Francisco. So while it sounds somewhat isolated geographically, it's a pretty big deal for the technology long term. Now, this, the vote is scheduled by the California Public Utilities Commission, CPUC, CPUC. Not the best out. Not the, yeah, I'd say C minus for uh, marketing there. Um, yeah, not so attractive. And it's shaping up to be a referendum on an array of issues related to technology, including the politics of artificial intelligence and human workforce that will be affected by the technology's rapid deployment. So the vote is going to come by next week. And it looks like the vote is coming to a board of five folks. So pretty small margin of error. If one or two flip, you're going to either get what you want or not. Now, if the commission agrees, they a lot of people who are concerned about this, they claim that hundreds of self-driving taxis could be available for hire for everyone to the general public, which would displace some of the jobs in San Francisco. Now, I'm actually astonished to hear that there are still some jobs in San Francisco in and of itself, as more people have left there, more businesses have left there than I can possibly count. And I'm only moderately joking, it's quite true, as California has lost more businesses than any other state. I wonder why, no, I'm just kidding, we all know why. But this would be a huge pivotal moment, because if California allows this, you're gonna have more and more states follow suit. And the industry of AI autonomous driving vehicles that's going to explode because one of the things that's limiting it right now is depending on where you are geographically, it's not legal, so it can't happen yet. And you're going to have that the cultural shift of Americans will they shift their perception to want this technology, which of course then they could thereby actually reach out to the political leaders and they could actually tell them whether they want to vote yay or nay on these upcoming issues. But it also shows the importance of politics when it comes to certain businesses, as politics is interwoven with many of them indeed. Now, fascinating enough, it looks like GM actually owns Cruise, and they've lost $611 million in Q2 alone. But I'm not too surprised GM is quite adamant or quite a proficient at losing copious amounts of money, as well as killing dreams as they took away the three pedals from the Corvette. And it's automatic, and now soon to be an EV, which the best Corvette ever is a Corvette with three pedals, also known as a manual transmission. The last generation Corvette 
literally 19 to 23% of all the vehicles sold in that generation, again, varies on the year, they're all stick shifts with three pedals and main transmission. Good old American muscle killed for a drawless, emotionless EV. A little part of me died inside, not gonna lie. But it'll be interesting to see politically which way will the vote go. We'll find out next week, or rather in a couple days more accurately. But time shall tell. Now, going on to the business blunder of the day. You have Wells Fargo with their deposits. It's just vanishing again. Now, this is actually the second time this year. And Wells Fargo, they acknowledge that the deposits, deposits are, quote, not showing up in customers' accounts. It actually... In an email statement last Friday morning, the Wells Fargo representative said that the issue was affected a, quote, limited number of customers, unquote, which is a very much a political statement because, yeah, that how do you define limited? Is that 12 customers or is that 50,000 customers? Because, again, they're a large bank. They have millions of customers. Regardless, it's going to hurt if you're one of those customers. You're not going to care of how many were affected. It's going to care that you were affected. And... This is one of the most nerve-wracking things, not being able to access your funds if you're trying to buy groceries, get gasoline. That's got to be pretty hectic and pretty anxiety levels got to be through the roof in those situations. Now, they also noted that, a quote, the vast majority, unquote, of instances will soon be resolved. While, quote, few remaining instances, quote, would be resolved soon as well. Now, it turns out the issue that last time this happened over in March of 2023 that turned out to be an IT issue. Although it's cliche to say, don't blame the network. Funny IT joke if you're in the industry. Now, it'll be interesting to see, the customers start to move away from this because this bank also has a couple of moral issues as well in terms of the business practices. They actually have a reoccurring theme where the bank reports phony bank statements and the company has actually paid billions in fines and they've actually cycled through two CEOs since that incident was first reported back in 2011. So they don't have the best track record in that regard. I know a couple people who still use it, but it'll be interesting to see from a culture perspective, maybe do people move away from this brand? Because this isn't the first business blunder they've had. And it'll be interesting to see, can they stop them? Or at least decrease the frequency in which they happen? And again, hopefully these, able, these folks are able to access their capital as soon as possible so they can buy all the things they need. But we shall see. In terms of you know messing up, that is... That is certainly the business blunder of the day. Thank you everyone for taking the time to tune in. Again, we're trying to get to 3,000 subscribers by the end of August, so I greatly appreciate you taking the time to click that button. Also, if you take the time to like and comment, that helps us grow and develop as well. Really appreciate the feedback that I'm getting. Also, don't forget to tell your family, tell your friends, tell your coworkers. Heck, tell your enemies, tell anyone and everyone. Just stay safe and fight the good fight.